Hi there, I'm Mark Isero, and welcome to the Highlighter Article Club, where we read, annotate, and discuss one great article every month on race, education, or culture. We're already in September, everyone, and school started, and this month we've been diving into an outstanding article called A Kingdom from Dust by Mark Eriks, which was published a few years ago in the California Sunday Magazine. It is a big, bold, 90-minute, beautifully written piece about the state of agriculture and water in California. And it's about it's about so much more, too. It's really, really hard to summarize. Uh, Mr. Eriks does such a great job encapsulating all the beauty as well as the plunder of California. And I've been a Californian all my life, and many of you have been as well. And it's just really great to see so many of us, not just from California, who are really interested in discussing this piece on the 25th. If you still want to sign up and you haven't done so far, there's still a few slots open. And so you can go to highlighter.cc slash discussion to sign up. But most of all, before we get into the interview, I just want to thank Mr. Eric so much for coming on and thoughtfully answering our questions. I really appreciate it. And without any more of my talking, let's get to the interview. I hope that you really, really enjoy it. Hey, Mark, thank you so much for doing Article Club on your great, great article, Kingdom from Dust. It's great to have you here. Nice to be here, Mark. Thanks a lot. There's just so many people who have read this article and want to talk about it. And I just want to get into it, if that's okay. The first thing that just comes up right from the beginning is how much you love California. And I'm a Californian too. A lot of people in Article Club are too. But I would just love to hear more about you, obviously your relationship with California, but like how much you personally love it. It seems like you do. Well, I, I have a, a conflicted view of California, of course. I mean, deep love, deep disappointment. Uh, as a kid, m- my grandfather was a, a kind of poet. He had a friendship with the, the writer William Soroyan. And I remember as a kid going to visit Soroyan. And he had this same conflicted view of California and Fresno and the Valley, uh, really mu- very much a love-hate thing. And I think that's how all natives are. I think the hate comes from love. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a kind of disappointment that the place isn't, you know, being all that it can be in your eyes. And that disappointment, you know, leads to despair. And, you know, sometimes, I mean, hate is a strong word. I I use it more in a literary way, love, hate. So, um, yeah, but, you know, I'm a native. Um, My grandfather came in 1920. He journeyed out of genocide. Uh, The Turks had killed the Armenians, uh, more than a million of them in 1915. My grandfather hid in an attic. He took a bunch of books up there with him. The French symbolist poets, Verlaine, writers Maupassant, and just kind of outlasted this genocide in this attic. And, uh, you know, came down after it was all done and had a choice. He was going to go to the Sorbonne, actually had a, a wealthy railroad magnet that was going to pay his way. And then these letters started coming from Fresno, from his uncle who had lost everybody in the genocide. And the uncle kept telling him how, how big the grapes were and how massive the watermelons were. And this is a new Armenia at the foot of the Sierra. And so my grandpa had this choice. I've told this story before, you know, Paris or Fresno. And he took the bait and came to Fresno. So, um, yeah, you grow up in this valley. You try to puzzle it out. There's a lot of mystery to the place. I think kids grow dumb to their place, grow up dumb to their place. And I was kind of dumb to my place until the murder of my father when I was 15. And that kind of opened up my eyes and began this journey to figure out what is this place? 
what are its secrets? And one of the great secrets is water, you know, where it comes from and who it goes to and by what mechanism it goes to them. Yeah, and that's central to your piece is just about water. And there's been other pieces and other books about water, but in this piece, um, I feel like you really do follow the mystery, not just of water, but really the mystery of California. Right at the beginning, you, you say, for half my life, I never stopped to wonder how much was magic and how much was plunder. Can you say a little bit more about that? Are you talking about California in general or water or a little bit of both? Uh, all of it. Um, so that, that starts off in a, in a kind of smaller way. I'm trying to puzzle out these irrigation canals that just, um, they were like lattice work through the landscape of the valley. They would knife through these neighborhoods. You know, I remember my grandfather who was deathly afraid of water. Uh, she had a younger sister who died in water. And she would tell me, don't go near the, the irrigation canal, which was like three doors down from their house. And so these canals with, uh, you know, went through town. They were never fenced. So every summer, uh, a lot of the children of the Mexican farm workers uh, trying to cool off would jump into the canals and drown. The water was pretty treacherous in there. There was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of kind of cross currents and flows. And it was pretty damn cold because it was snow melt. And um, these canals, they just were there as part of the landscape, kind of like the railroad tracks that also cross town. And you never really questioned them. You know, they were just part of the landscape. And at some point when your eyes opened up, you thought, well, what's this water going? You know, where's it coming from and where's it going to? And who commands the flow? That story is a story of magic, kind of defiance of gravity to get that water to where it needs to go where it falls to where it doesn't fall, uh, the rainfall. And then it's, it's also, um, so, th so that's kind of a magic. And then there's a plunder to the whole thing because you're, you're, you're taking a resource, you're extracting a, a resource for greed and hubris. And so that equation has followed me as I've grown up. Uh, in The King of California, my second book, I delve into it. In The Dreamt Land, I delve into it, you know, even deeper. Yeah, so my my mom's side are all farmers, and it's so interesting. Similar to what you said back more 50 and 70 years ago, there seemed to just be water just everywhere. And now if you ask them, it's really, obviously, they're really stressed out about it. And they get really mad, for example, they're up in Stockton. They get really mad about the aqueduct, for example. And they get very angry about sort of like, why is the water that is coming from here going all the way down to LA, to the current, you know, to Kern County. And for a typical person, for a typical Californian like me over in Oakland, we just want the water to come to our house. And <laughs> yes, and it's not and it's not that like, even if you have a well, for example, you can actually steal, not steal, but you can actually take water from from your neighbors from other and, and your piece just like really opened up so much more about water, you know, to me. No, these are these are you said steal and you apologize for saying it, but they're thefts. Okay, it's a theft of a resource. And if you're if you're just one straw in the ground, that's one thing. But uh, when you have a communal kind of thing going on and many straws in there, yeah, it becomes a form of stealing. So in the Delta, you know, the Delta feels put upon and it is because it's been made to, you know, it's water that comes from the Sacramento, the biggest river in, in, in California. That water has gone south 
in, in a variety of deals, you know, the, the building of the Great Central Valley Project, uh, which grew up out of the drought of the 1920s, a drought that until this drought was the worst drought in white man's history in California. And then you had the State Water Project, which came in a period of 1950s floods. And all those were, there were these deals, bargains. And so every place stole from another place. And the first thief was Los Angeles, which went up and over the mountain 230 miles away to the Owens Valley and stole its river. So, I mean, Chinatown, the movie, uh, and Cadillac Desert, you know, kind of, um, I mean, a great book that kind of, um, you know, led me to do my book. I think these are these bargains that were made, politics, and uh, some places have given their share and more. And I think the Delta is one of them. They're, they're tired of giving it. Why is water an issue? Well, we use those two systems, the Central Valley and state water, and then the groundwater itself. We have gone past the limit lines on those. And, um, at, you know, when we built the system, the first system, California had 13 million people. It's got 40 million now. The system's cracking. It's breaking under that pressure. And then added onto it is climate change. And then the usual pattern of drought that happens here. Uh, so all those forces are impinging on that system. And yes, the water now is not something you could take for granted. Yeah. And I did apologize for about stealing, but I think you're right. And it's also, um, you know, sort of like maybe all the lack of regulations as well. But it's interesting, like you talked about your grandfather. And I know that my grandfather also came, you know, for like the Amer for the American as well as the California dream. Yeah. And it certainly worked out for for him. But but in your piece, it's very clear that it doesn't work out necessarily for everybody. And so I think my first question is with the Resnicks, who are just, you know, they're not from here. And they are, are folks who want to live the California dream. And they come from far away. And they, they make this massive, massive empire. And obviously, they do a lot of shady stuff as well. But you were, you were able to meet with both of them. But you could characterize them as making it in California. California is the place to make it. Oh, um, no. I mean, you know, you know, billions and billions of making it. So the, really, the, the invention of California is an invention of, of migrants coming here. So that's not all that unusual for them to have come here. You know, the, the, the book, The King of California, is the story of the J.G. Boswell empire. The Boswells basically left the cotton south uh, after the boll weevil was ravaging the cotton fields. And they brought the plantation to the middle of California, right in the Tulare Lake Basin. And the Tulare Lake, Tulare lake was a shallow lake that uh, was the terminus of four, four rivers in, in, the, in the San Joaquin Valley. It was the biggest body of fresh water west of the Mississippi. And these cotton kings came and drained the rest of it dry. And so, so you know, and, and they planted cotton, a surplus crop, you know, in, in, on the bottom of this lake, a lake where four um, indigenous tribes have lived. So um, the, the, Boswell, the Boswells were maybe, um, you know, one of the first carpetbaggers, and the Resnicks were the carpetbaggers after them. Um, a, a little different. They uh, didn't have farming backgrounds, uh, but... Farming became a hedge against inflation and then a write-off and all that. And then it became an empire. I mean, those two controlled more water in California than, than any couple in the state. They, they have planted this, you know, they're responsible 
largely for the plantings of pistachios and almonds and pomegranates. And that expansion of agriculture uh, onto a footprint that now is very hard to support because you don't have the water to do it. So I, I didn't try, you know, one of the things I do with this book, I don't, um, I just feel to, to, to write a book and, and do it in a way that captures nuance and subtlety and shadings and all that. You know, no one's a cardboard bad person. Mm-hmm. You, so it's easy to demonize these folks from miles away. Uh, when you get up close, you, you, there, there's just a, a lot of stuff to juggle. And so, um, and it's my puzzling out. I mean, one of the nice things about stretching out in the book, and even beyond the magazine piece I did, and the magazine piece is probably 19, 20,000 words. Uh, uh, if you look at the words that are devoted to the, uh, the resonance in the book, it's probably 30 to 35,000. And it allows you to get at all those contradictions. Yeah, I appreciated that you did have a lot of nuance. And that speaks not just probably about some of your values as a writer, but also reporting and writing itself. And so it is easy to demonize a couple that has almost or as much water as all of Los Angeles. It's yes. it, and also, you know, you know, later in the piece when you ask some specific questions and and Mr. Resnick doesn't necessarily answer, you have to decide whether or not to press them. And right. I really do appreciate that that um, you wanted to get to know them because it's not just them who's part of California. Is that is that what you're getting at? Yeah, I think if see when you write a book like that, it's, which is an act of madness. I mean, in the middle of it, you know, I kept just writing more and more and more. Uh, but I knew that the the challenge was to keep the reader's eyes to it. I had to bring everything, you know, all the kitchen sink, the whole thing. So. My own story. You know, some people don't like that I put my own story in there. Well, I, I can't write it like I'm a stranger. I mean, we're part of this land. We were farmers here. So our story becomes integrated in this larger story. Uh, so it's got some memoir elements to it. Uh, it has biography to it. It has essay to it, uh, reportage, you know, the techniques of fiction writing. And, a sto- and of course, this, this huge historical excavation, because really, when, when you trace this back, this extraction, it, it goes right to the DNA of California, the invention of it. Um, and, and not just the invention of the gold rush, but the Spanish experiment here that took the body of the native, the Indians, and used that resource to then capture the first flows of the rivers and the first building of crude ditch and dam. Yeah, it does have everything. And actually, readers have been saying that. They said that at the beginning, when you're in your car going down um, uh, Highway 99, they're yeah. with you, you know, and then you get to, they get to know you. And then they're sort of wondering, like, what, where exactly is this piece going to go? And it's everything that you said, but it's also a mystery of the pipeline. Like, what exactly, wh- where is the pipeline? And yeah, no, thank you. You're, you're right. Thank goodness there was a there was this pipeline. So one of the things that Soroyan taught me was that whenever you write, you have to find something you know that you begin with. And he always said that he began with a tree, the sense of a tree, not 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 literally the tree. Although he did begin a few stories with literally a walnut tree in the back of his yard when he was a kid. And why a tree? Because a tree is a solid idea, and it's a thing of great attachments. And so. It attaches to branches and limbs and, and fruit, if you're lucky, and leaf, and then it all comes falling down to the ground. And for me, Highway 99 is a, is a thing of great attachment. And so as you're driving that road, 
you start riffing on what you see in front of you, you know, this, and, and it, it, it really is, uh, I mean, geologists call this landscape the most altered landscape by human hand in human history. I mean, what was, what was done here was, I mean, in one eye, it might be magnificent. In another eye, it may be just a great act of violence. I mean, a violence that was visited upon a land to change it the way it was changed. So, yeah, I've, I've tried to describe 99 in more than one of my books. And each time it's a challenge. And this time I figured, no, I'm going to go all in and use that as the thread because it's its own river. I mean, it's a river. Yeah, it's, and it's the, the, the violence or the change, the modification of the landscape. It's also the haves versus the have-nots. You yeah. also spoke about the Native Americans. And even when you describe farming itself, the idea of what does it mean to cultivate and to harvest an almond tree, for example. You right. go back to the tree and you go back to the mechanization of it and just how violent. There's one part in the piece where you're like, I'm actually surprised that the tree even makes it. Yeah, the shaking of the almond. I mean, it is, no, talk about violence. It's like grabbing with the clutching with this machine and shaking. And you're thinking, wait, wait, this is going to uproot this tree, but it doesn't, it, it just stops short of doing that. And then all this, these nuts come down. So yeah, a lot of violence here, you know, violence that, that plays out in the land, a violence that pits people, you know, the, the bending that goes on here, the bending of, of, of water, the importation of bees to pollinate from, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's billions of bees, okay? And then the, um, the, the bending of the, the, there's a chapter in there called The Candyman, who's actually taking the, the stuff of a grape and adding other kinds of, um, you know, gene types to it and turning a grape into a piece of candy. Uh, you know, if you think that a grape already starts off as a piece of candy, maybe that manipulation is too much. Uh, and then the manipulation of, of labor, you know, bringing a people across a border and subjecting them to the hardest work around. All yeah. these things raise these profound questions. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Because that's been central to how this has all existed for many, many years is the bending, but also the importation of people over the border, um, many of whom, most of whom are undocumented. And just sort of like just how I guess it just seems like it's the natural, normal, only actually the only way that this could even be possible. Um, you talked to Lupe, you talked to some other folks, um, you went into their homes and you asked them what their experiences, what their hopes were, but also their experiences, you know, as workers. Um, how were you affected by that personally, that part of the reporting? I, I've been telling the story of farm workers, um, you know, mostly Latino for 30 years. I had a story called The Summer of the Death of Hilario Guzman in a, a collection called West of West. Uh, that was probably the most intimate portrait of a, of a farm worker family. Well, certainly the most intimate I had written. And um, it's a privilege to tell the story of these folks. And again, you have to, you know, there's just a lot of shading to the story. Okay. Yes, they come here, their own free will. Yes, the wages they're making here are better than they are in Mexico. Um, yes, the crops, have, have, as the season has extended and the wages have gotten better, they can even afford homes, okay? At least they could before this last uh, crazy uh, you know, housing boom took place. But um, 
so getting inside that story is is always a challenge. I don't speak Spanish, so um, it, it requires a translator that I trust and a lot of time, a lot of time for them to trust me. So you know that that the the story of their labor going out in the fields with them. Um, you know, these are like hidden zones. We don't see them. When I was a kid growing up, if we'd go, my dad would take me to watch the 49ers play or we'd go to Disneyland. You know, you'd see these fields outside your suburbia and it would occur to you, wow, you know, the suburbs aren't endless. They, 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 in fact, they end about five miles out and the rest of it is given over to this massive experiment in agriculture. And these people, you know, bandanas hiding their faces are real folks. And I think the first time I saw them in town was when the UFW and Cesar Chavez in the, in the late 1960s started marching through Fresno. And, and there was a face I could put to these workers, finally. Yeah. And what did they think about the company town that the Resnicks have created in Lost Hills? Um, yeah, I, again, nuance, you know, like, yeah. I, I don't see any of them necessarily wanting to do the Zumba classes, um, but they, uh, but <laughs> yes. they may like, but they may like $3 food, but they may also want to have food that they want to eat. It was just so I, I got really um, critical, you know, at times, yeah. but then, but then at the same time, it might be better than otherwise they could have had otherwise. You know, you, you nailed it right there. I mean, the social engineering that's going on when Linda is trying to change the biome of their guts by giving them, um, you know, uh, apple cider vinegar and turmeric and all this other kind of stuff, which, you know, happens to be good. But, um, you know, it, it's they may just want to bring the burrito from home, you know. Yeah. And so... Um, and there is a tremendous amount of diabetes in those communities, and she's trying to fight against that. So, you know, you look at that and you're a little grossed out at what she's doing, but at the same time, she's doing tremendous good. They've lost like some collective 10,000 pounds or whatever it is uh, among the company town workers. Um, a lot of them, you know, call her Lady Linda and are thankful for what she's done to the, for the community. Now, it took the residents a while. They had that as a company town for a quarter century before they really did anything. And then, you know, the more and more they looked at their, what this was, the, the more they decided that we need to give back. And not just writing checks. I mean, she's designing these schools for the children of farm workers, right down to the curriculum. So um, I don't know, man, it's, it's a complicated mix. How do you decide, though, you know, I, I, I believe that you want to get to know people, but how do you know when somebody is sincere? So, for example, they also rip up hundreds of acres of California oaks in order to make wine. And then they say, sorry. Um, and then why yeah, does they get she get caught and they say, sorry. Right. Well, that's the thing. And like, why, do, why does she? I mean, I want to believe that she cares about diabetes among, you know, the farm workers, but sort of like why that and not something else. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, man, it's just the flaw of humanity. I mean, you, I mean, they, they, listen, they have tremendous ambition, hubris, all that. I think, you know, Resnick, we get into his past, you know, his father owned a bar like my did, my dad did. Um, his father was a tough guy. So, you know, he's just one generation removed from all of that. Mm -hmm. These aren't wasps, patricians, you know, blue bloods. Um, I mean, they're, you know, so they carry all that inside them. What's, what's going to happen, though? You know, I'm sorry to interrupt, but, you know, you, you explain how he may not be totally close to his kids, or at least the kids don't want to take on this empire. What's going to happen with, with this huge, huge kingdom? Well, this is, see, 
this is where you're comparing, you know, something that's not so great with something that could be worse. I mean, we're seeing hedge funds, pension funds, the Canadian Royal Mountie Retirement Fund, the Mormon Church, buying up huge swaths of land in California, knowing that there's this water problem, but thinking, okay, on our books, if we can show five, six years of profits, maybe even losses to, to offset the profits from other investments, uh, you know, we should make a bet on this farmland. So you almost rue the day that the Resnicks end up, you know, selling that to uh, a massive hedge fund. <laughs> well, well, or to this John Vitovich guy. Oh, um, Vitovich, yeah. And, and, not, and not him specifically, but toward the end of the piece, it totally just got wild for me that, that apparently California, you're going to be buying land not to grow, on, grow anything on it, but rather just for the water underneath. I don't know exactly how I felt, but I felt really overwhelmingly just disturbed by that, like sad about that, like that, like that actually this is what it's come to. Right. Yeah. There is a sadness with that awareness. Um, I think for all our progressive stuff we've done, you know, leading the country and the world and all sorts of great, you know, great things that, that seem not conceivable and, and, and really were uh, in the social realm, in the, you know, in, in the realm of Green, the green economy, all these things. For all that, California had, was one of the last states to regulate the taking of groundwater, which speaks to its own kind of um, you know, contradiction. So um, we now have this law, Sigma will eventually, I mean, it's a 20 year run up to it, but eventually if the Department of Water Resources do, does things right, it will not allow any more extraction of water than the snow melt brings, okay? mm -hmm. which is a good law. Um, which will end up following probably more than a million acres in the San Joaquin Valley alone, which is a good thing. But it makes, so what, what happens is, is these guys are buying extra land and, and in the interim, putting down even more wells to extract more water. So when the law goes into effect, they have a historical record of the taking. And they can see. So that thing had this completely perverse effect of uh, really unintended, you know, but it should have not been unintended. It was actually, you, if, you, if you looked at it, it was, you could see it, that mm -hmm. this was gonna be the consequence that in the, in the run up to this law, they were just gonna pump the hell out of the groundwater even more, sinking the aqueducts, sinking canals, sinking towns. And that's the thing, you know, with the 40 million Californians, you know, me being one of them, it just seems too big for me to do anything about it. And yet you have been writing about it for years. This is, this is your work. And obviously you care about it so deeply. And from the likes of like how many people want to join Article Club this month to be reading and discussing your piece, this is something that people really care about, but it seems so big. And so I guess one of my last questions is, is really what do you hope for the reader? Meaning, what are you trying to tell us? And then also, what can we do as a possible next step? Yeah, those are really good questions to end on. Um, I'm documenting, this is just a document that goes under the, uh, you know, into the category of climate change, right? I mean, you know, climate change is huge. And because of how big it is, we seem paralyzed to try to do something. And it's the same with this issue too. But I think there are some things we can do. I, you know, I hesitated putting out this prescription of things that can be done. Mm -hmm. But when I'm on the land in the book with this guy named the Oracle, uh, a magnificent scene at the end of the book, 
he challenges me, he says, get your notebook, let's come up with some ideas. And we did. One, we're gonna have to see the footprint of agriculture reduced by about um, a quarter. We're gonna have to stop building in the wildland urban interface in the path of wildfires. I mean, that's an insanity too. So the sprawl of suburbia and the sprawl of farmland, we're gonna to have to stop that. We can't do that anymore. We shouldn't have done it in the first place, but with drought and climate change hitching on to drought can't be done. We are the, the state of mega dairies, these dairies that have 25, 30,000 cows, okay? That doesn't make sense. Our soil and water and sun, they're too valuable to support an industry that can happen anywhere. And milk is surplus. So, so these, these, these mega dairies that are using, you know, the cow uses more water than anything else. The, the growing of silage, the growing of alfalfa, the, the water used on the dairies themselves, how the water is polluted with nitrite, nitrates and goes down and pollutes the groundwater. The air in this valley is polluted with the, the, the dust and, and, and the, the off-gassing of the dairies in the air. So dairy's got to go. And right there, that, that, you know, the big dairies, the mega dairies, the family dairies are cool, uh, but the big ones have to go to a place that's, you know, makes more happy cows. So um, these kinds of things, I think uh, there are solutions that we can do. And, um, you know, we just have to start being real about what we're facing. And so am I optimistic? Not necessarily. But I'm trying to spread this word, not unlike, you know, some kind of evangelical, I guess, and um, hope, hoping folks can, can read the book and figure out the history and see the patterns and maybe advocate for those patterns to change. It's hard to change a place. It's kind of hard baked, um, but we're going to have to. I totally agree. And um, I can't wait to talk about your article with folks at Article Club. And we're going to be raffling off one of the copies of your book, but I'm going to be encouraging that everybody um, read not just this book, but but all of your work, just because it's just really, really stunning. So I just wanted to thank you so much for doing Article Club and for for generously uh, sharing your thoughts on your piece. Mark, thank you. It's good, it's good to share and um, you know meet readers this way virtually in every way, you know, so th thanks a lot for what you're doing. Appreciate it. I want to thank Mr. Eriks yet again for coming on to Article Club and for thoughtfully sharing all of your views about not just your piece, but about California and about writing. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Also want to appreciate all of you Article Clubbers for reading all these pieces and for listening in to these wonderful authors. If you have any questions or if you want to reach out, please, all you need to do is email me at mark at highlighter.cc. I hope you have a great, wonderful week.